0: If you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 5, the title of today's message is The Fruit of Conversion. Now life is indeed full of much fun and happiness, family, entertainment, dare I say sports, At least last Sunday, it wasn't too fun for me. Was fun. <laughs> <Anything out there. laughs> all kidding aside, whether it's family, entertainment, sports, animals, you know, the natural things in life, um, by all means, we should enjoy them as long as, you know, we are not engaged in sin in those activities or perhaps tempted To sin, God's not requiring us to be monks, isolated from the world that we live in. Not to mention, don't leave out our vocations. Whether it's sales, nursing, teaching, or for some of you, farming. Hopefully, those vocations in many respects bring happiness and fun and joy in, in many respects. Hopefully it's, it's the work ethic that we apply to those vocations. That drives your sense of joy in what you do. Hopefully a work ethic that in many respects expresses extreme dedication and commitment. And in doing that you often see the fruit Of your labors, and and that is rewarding and that's self fulfilling. For some of us, it's the top sales award. For others, it's a patient who recovers. Others, it's a student that excels. For some of us, it's the crop that yields expectations, which contributes to our joy and happiness. Let me repeat by all means, celebrate these moments of life. Nevertheless, we cannot allow them to define who we are. I want you to listen to the following parable from Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 20 as a point of reflection concerning what defines us. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared. One day our soul will be required of us. No matter what we enjoy in this world and apply ourselves to, nothing comes close or compares to knowing Christ. Absolutely nothing. What's more, that day where our soul will be required of us, none of us know the time of that day. Could it be this year? Could it be this day? I hope and pray that's not the case. We have much work to do together for the cause of Christ. But nevertheless, as Paul said, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Do we believe that? When that day comes, those of us that are certainly in Christ will rest assured in the state of our soul. If that's you, this passage, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, will indeed serve to edify and encourage you. However, at the same time, and just as important, this passage also serves as a magnifying lens for examination. To see if one is truly in Christ or even to draw the one who openly rejects Christ. None of us are naive in thinking that the church is impervious to false converts or actual imposters. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 19, when John said, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not Of us, that said, how might we be more discerning regarding this idea, this discussion of the fruit of conversion? How might we protect the church? How might we, maybe even better, think about how we can be more compassionate and loving and reaching? For those who have never truly surrendered to Christ. Do we weep? Do we care? For those who will one day face the Lord and he say, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Even that statement speaks to the fact that many will come before him as though they are ready to be received. But yet, as John states, they lived a life of a lie. It's clear from other sections of this letter, and of course this passage, that John was just as concerned with questions such as these. In our passage here this morning, verses 1-5, through we'll see three answers to what will be our question this morning. And that is... What does true conversion look like? This is without a doubt. John's concern, theme, purpose, whatever you want to call it, for this section of Scripture. A concern that's just as vitally imperative for us here today as it was for the churches of Asia Minor. One which should serve to enhance our discernment in matters such as these. Protect this church. And hopefully invigorate our passion and concern for those who are truly without Christ. Now, before we turn our attention to the first answer, and I'm still in the introduction. It would be helpful for us to briefly address two items first it's always good to define terms that said what about this term conversion what is biblical conversion simply stated we could say that it's a turning from sin a surrender of one's life by faith alone in Christ alone Biblical conversion. Now, what that looks like has unfortunately been hijacked by many over the years. This, of course, has been a big contributor to the misconceptions of what this looks like. Whether it's through the advent of altar calls or sinners' prayers. Charles Finney in the 19th century only served to further exacerbate these issues. Man-centered approaches to evangelism and conversion have, in some respects, always existed. Approaches that inevitably contradict the Scripture's teaching. What's more, far too often aid in the promotion of false converts. Hence, once again, the absolute necessity for us To understand a proper perspective. Secondly, is this idea of repetition. Perhaps some of you, just even in this introduction, in in these verses, have already begun to think that this sounds a lot like what we've already discussed. Well, you'd be correct. And for that plain, simple reason we'd be wise to consider the significance of it. John intended to drive these truths home through repetition. We know how much we need repetition in any area of life. It's for that reason that the Spirit of God desires to drive these truths home for us as well here today. With that emphasis would that serve to keep us laser focused when it comes to the fruit of conversion? Stay with me it's imperative it's important for us to properly understand these things With that said, would you stand with me please, for the reading of God's word? First John chapter five verses one through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Let me read verse four because I skipped over that one. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. You may be seated. Our first answer to the question, what does true conversion look like, is number one, a life that surrenders. Look with me again at the beginning of verse one. He states, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, before we address the primary emphasis of this first answer, I want to briefly touch on two points. First, we can see that there's clearly a sense of believing here. A conveyance of ongoing confession and practice of righteousness. It's in the present tense in the Greek. And all of you now understand that as much as we state what that implies. We know that once a person receives Christ... They're once and for all crucified with Him. Nevertheless, true surrender always produces ongoing works. Works having nothing to do with our salvation, but a clear and evident fruit of true conversion. More on that in our second answer. Secondly, Briefly, these points before our primary emphasis. There's also a sense in which conversion is one that on a basic level conveys that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Divine, yet incarnate. 100% God, and yet 100% man. Another point that John's continued to communicate, and we've seen several times as we've worked our way through the letter notwithstanding regarding our primary emphasis of a life that surrenders we need to consider more deeply this phrase born of god let's connect the dots with some context and look back at chapter 2 verse 29 John states, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, we read, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, you don't need to turn there, but you can make a note and reference it later. Two others from John's gospel. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 read, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born, and we've referenced this several times, not today, but throughout these messages, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or one other, which many of you are probably more than familiar with, The famous passage of John 3.3 as Jesus is addressing Nicodemus and he says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what's the point here? Given the overall Johannine context. Once again, that word referencing all of John's writings. It's all about the grammatical order Listen, and this references each verse that we just looked at. We practice righteousness because we were first born of Him. We love one another because we were first born of God. We only see the kingdom of God unless we were first born from above. We were converted. And we became children of God because we were first born of God. Moreover, and this is another massive grammatical consideration. Each of John's seven references concerning being born of God or born of him are all written in the exact same grammatical structure. All communicating the exact same thing. Those born of God. Biblically converted. Have all received the action of salvation first. Apart from anything in and of themselves. Friends. Let me ask a question. In light of this. Because God is the first cause and source of salvation, of conversion. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Apart from the grace of God, all men are enemies, helpless and under the wrath of God. Scripture clearly communicates. Like a guilty criminal. Such were all of us, tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. Such is our certain fate unless God first grants the pardon. Now, I've been asked this question, perhaps some of you. In light of such difficult truths such as this, some may ask, how do I know if God has granted me to be born again? There's a simple answer to that question. Beg for mercy. Surrender your life. Turn from sin and the Lord of glory will confirm that you have been born again. Amen. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of him. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is how we know we've been born again. Is there anyone here today who's never truly done this? Put away your pride and surrender your life to Christ. As for those of us who have truly surrendered, what does true conversion look like? What does it produce? Paul in Romans chapter 6 verses 8 through 10 spoke of what flows forth from this type of surrender. Listen to this all inspiring truth as he communicates what is true about Christ and then culminates in what is true about you, believer. You who've been born from above. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a promise for you, beloved. Those of you that are in Christ. What a privilege it is. To receive and experience. Such freedom. From sin. It has no mastery over you no more. Because you have been born from above. Would this cause us to humbly worship. And to praise Him more? You love because He first loved you. As we examined in chapter 4, in light of such undeserved mercy, would we surrender even more of our lives to Christ? Yes. By the sovereign grace of God, You surrendered at the point of your conversion. But, oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, God is calling you each and every day to continue to surrender your life to Christ. This is what true conversion looks like. What does that look like for you, husbands and wives, co workers? How are we surrendering our lives to Christ? A life that surrenders is clearly a reflection of true conversion as well as a life that obeys. And that's our second answer to the question, what does true conversion look like? It's a life that obeys. Look at the second half of verse 1 and then verse 2. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Now, if you recall, way back in our introductory message we identified three major themes for the letter as a whole. You might recall number one was a proper belief, number two was a willful obedience, and then number three was a selfless love. In our first answer this morning, a life that surrenders, we primarily saw a proper belief on display. In this second answer, a life that obeys, We'll see the other two themes. That said, let's deal with the selfless love and how that connects to a life that obeys. Now, John, throughout this letter, links these two concepts of love and obedience. What's more, especially given the context of 1 John, it's all about the love of one another. They're inseparably linked. Obedience that manifests itself in love for the body of Christ. How do we know that one has truly been converted? They love the child who's been born of him, the children of God. In chapter 3, verse 14, John painted a powerful picture concerning this love and obedience for the body. He said, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So without a doubt, love for the body of Christ is a crucial element. Of conversion. Of a life that obeys. Is this not what agape love is? We've defined that term several times now. A specific type of biblical love that conveys selflessness. A desire and interest for the concern of others. Not just oneself. This is body life. This is biblical fellowship. Intimate. Interconnected love of one another. Many of you will be practicing that even more, even tonight, in our community groups. Having said that, how can a true converted believer not be concerned with the church? doesn't work that way. It's a contradiction of faith. To use a title of one of our previous messages. So. Let me offer a thought concerning this. That could certainly step on some toes. Of the culture of our day. Today's technology. Which by the way. We certainly take advantage of and appreciate. Has unfortunately deceived many churches as well. And that deception relates to the oxymoron online church or Zoom church. Now, let me say one thing up front. There are some incapable of attending due to health reasons or other severe extenuating circumstances. I am not talking about these beloved brothers and sisters. We love them. And in many respects, these beloved brothers and sisters are doing everything within their power to stay connected to the church through technology. We're thankful for the technology from that perspective. Amen? However, for those who are fully healthy and capable of attending... Yet choose to practice church online or even worse, not even desire the fellowship of the body, yet claim to walk in the light. Beloved. That's troubling. That's concerning. And we should be concerned about the state of their souls. John earlier in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, commanded us to not be deceived. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. We should be concerned with these individuals. We should love them enough to challenge them because we do love them. Even in the introduction, we talked about how this passage serves to inspire us to continue reaching for the lost. And the same way that this passage inspires us to do that, to practice more love and obedience, let us never forget God can also use it to convict the heart that's never truly surrendered. So, if love and obedience are inseparably linked, one can't help but live a life that obeys in all areas of life. Look again. At verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Now, first off, and this is another theme of repetition don't forget, don't miss the vertical priority of our lives following His love of us first and our love for Him. Everything else is simply the result of these two components. It drives us. Many of you will even remember, as John wrote earlier, the distinction between Cain and Abel. Remember how we considered The horizontal factor versus the vertical in that illustration. Even within the summary verse concluding chapter 4. John in essence reiterated the two greatest commandments. Number one being the priority of our love for God. First and foremost. This vertical component will be absolutely essential for us in a life that obeys and a life that surrenders. In chapter 4, verse 8, he reminded these churches of God's nature. You'll remember when he said that God is love. It's his nature that abides in us, which in turn causes us to prioritize our love for him. First and foremost, Above all things. And the same way that Christ prioritized his love for the Father, we now prioritize our love for him. This will be massive for us in manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. That's our strength for loving others, for observing all of his commandments. That's true conversion. Albeit, not in a perfect, obedient sense. All of us understanding the weight of missing the mark. Let's illustrate it in this manner. Within a godly marriage, there's often a desire, the word desire will be key for us, between spouses to please one another. There's, of course, a flesh that gets in the way and inhibits that at times. All of us can raise our hand and say, Guilty. Yet, there's also a harmonious motivation for us to serve one another in all areas, to love one another in all areas, our spouses. In the same manner, the true converted Christian desires with all their heart to serve God in whatever area. It's not a pick and choosing Christianity, I've used this illustration before, is not a buffet for us to say, I like this part of Scripture, but I don't like this part of Scripture. The Christian is called to observe or keep all of his commandments. To repeat John's words from chapter 2 verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Now. In addition to complete. And total desire. For obedience. There's even more. Notice I continue to use this word desire connect it with desire to please with the marriage illustration. It should not be a burden for spouses to love each other. It's not just a check the box mentality. It's their will for desire to do so. to love each other, to serve each other in whatever area God is called. And When I originally crafted this title, Willful Obedience, for one of the primary themes, it was this next verse that played a major reason for doing so. Look with me at verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Not only does true conversion create obedience, but it creates willful obedience. A desire within the deep recesses of your heart to please. The Lord who caused you to be born again. This word burdensome carries the idea of being oppressive. To keep his commandments is not difficult or oppressive. Now, hear what I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. This in no way communicates a sense of constant victory. Paul clearly demonstrates that himself as an inspired writer of scripture. In Romans chapter 7. You know the verse, I'll paraphrase it. But why do I do what I don't want to do? However, he didn't remain in that mindset, did he? It was his total surrender and dependence upon Christ and his strength that enabled him to proclaim the following verses. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. It's this type of focus that enables us to personalize The psalmist words from Psalm 119, verse 32, when he said, I shall run the way of your commandments. For you will enlarge my heart. Beloved, is that your desire to run for Christ? Here recently I had an opportunity to watch. Some of you have had this opportunity along with me a short missionary video from a man who is serving the Lord in Nepal. And it so impacted me when that video started. He said, I want to live for Christ. I want to die for Christ. He's running after the Lord and his, the commandments to him are not burdensome. In a world that increasingly desires Christianity to be more palatable, culturally relevant, or less committal, true conversion considers it a joy and not burdensome to keep his commandments. Now, understanding the weight of this. From a pastoral perspective, before we move to our third answer, let me offer a thought of encouragement, perhaps for some of you. Because you know what the reality of it is, is that we always don't feel... There's times where we don't always feel like we're running for Christ. Am I right? Every believer has indeed experienced definitive sanctification. After regeneration, this idea, definitive sanctification from Romans chapter 6, that after conversion, you are crucified with Christ. You are dead to sin once and for all. You are definitively sanctified. Praise the Lord. However, we also know we're experiencing progressive sanctification. Colossians chapter 3 talks about how we take off the old man and we put on the new. Well, that said, there are well meaning Christians that at times doubt their definitive once and for all sanctification or salvation or conversion. Why does this happen? I believe wholeheartedly often it stems from an individual that is perhaps too concerned. With a progressive area of sanctification. In specificity. Where they. At least on the surface. Seem to be falling short. In this one area. And it pains them. That in and of itself. Should be a good sign to you. That it pains you. Beloved don't fall into this trap look at the broader perspective. Does your life exhibit and reflect a life of surrender? Does your life from a broader perspective, big picture, reflect a life that obeys? A life that practices selfless love? Take comfort. Dear brother, dear sister, there is no condemnation. You have been born from above. In chapter 3, John said, communicating inspired by the Spirit, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on you. This is what your life is. Big picture, broader perspective reflects. You're walking in the light. Take comfort. What's more? Not only do I want you to take comfort, not only does God's word desire for you to take comfort this morning, here's that line of the tribe of Judah moment. God's word desires for you to take courage. And that's our third answer to the question. A life that overcomes. This is what true conversion looks like. A life that surrenders, a life that overcomes, a life that takes courage by overcoming. Look at verses four and five. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Just a couple points for us here as we draw to a close. Notice the repetition again. Clearly on display. John uses the same Greek word four times in these two verses. Three times it's translated as overcome, one time as victory. (laughs) Would you let that resonate deep down within your soul? You are an overcomer, you will conquer you will be victorious. All of us at times feel the weight of a world that is against us. We're in a battle with this ancient spiritual foe. Satan is using everything he can to distract you from the truth of your conquest. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Not to mention, each of us are at war in in the members of our flesh. Going back to that Romans 7 again. Or to use even John. We're at war with the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Are you struggling to surrender? Are you struggling to willfully obey in selfless love for the body of Christ, for the lost? Take courage, Christian. You're a warrior and a conqueror in the army of the Lord. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Like Gideon, you're a man of mighty expectations. You're a mighty warrior. Like Daniel, you're a man or woman of extraordinary spirit. What's more, why can you have such courage? Once again, it's all about that God-centered theology. Notice John mentions our faith. <clears throat> Even understanding our faith from a God-centered theology perspective, understands it and proclaims, let him who boasts, boast. boast In the Lord. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. Clearly demonstrates that even our faith. Is a gift. From God. Additionally. Don't forget the significance. Of this grammatical structure. And sequence that we've seen throughout this passage. We see it again in verse 4. This continues to empower us in his power and in his victory, not ours. Because of what he has done on your behalf, you are an overcomer. You are a conqueror. You are victorious. And then finally, this one takes the cake. This word overcome, it's the same word that Christ uses to describe himself. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, as I read this verse, we keep talking about the illuminating work of the Spirit and how he serves to affirm and confirm the truth of Scripture and personalize and internalize it listen to this verse as Christ speaks about himself and specifically applies to you. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I Have overcome the world. Amen. How can we ever doubt. Our conquering victory. Our warrior king. The majestic. Lord and savior. Jesus Christ. Has already accomplished it. On your behalf. Friends, this is what true conversion looks like. A life that surrenders. Not just at conversion. Begging for mercy. In need of his work of grace. But a life that surrenders on an ongoing daily basis. For the glory of God. Because we desire to please him. A life that obeys, practicing agape, selfless love, concerned with the body of Christ above all things, concerned in compassion for the lost, and a life that stands firm in the certain truth that we will overcome, that we will be victorious. For most of us here today, I pray these truths would only drive you to more awe and wonder and worship of the God in whom you serve, the God who redeemed your depraved and lost soul according to his purpose. And according to his grace perhaps for some i plead with you have you surrendered your life to christ beg for mercy call upon the name of the lord and you shall be saved pray with me dear Lord we thank you for your inspired, inerrant infallible word we thank you Lord that you bought us with a price that you laid down your life for the sheep Lord, because of these great truths, would you cause us, Lord, to be a people of surrender? Not a people of clenched fists, but a people of open hands, saying, take my life. Use it for your glory and for your honor. A people of obedience and love and a people of victory. And courage because you have overcome. In the precious name of our majestic Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.